The reason we all gather is to share stories, stories of discrimination, persecution, and even genocide. The purpose for sharing those stories is to, to catalyze multi-faith actions, uh, to urge governments to take specific policy actions to advance freedom of thought, conscience, and religion for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the USERV Spotlight Podcast, a podcast series by the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each episode, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. I'm Elizabeth Cassidy, Director of Research and Policy at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. October 27th is International Religious Freedom Day in the United States, commemorating the enactment of the International Religious Freedom Act in 1998. IRFA, as the law is known, requires the U.S. government to promote the fundamental human right to freedom of religion or belief abroad as a foreign policy priority. Today, we'll be discussing the important role that civil society plays in international religious freedom or IRF promotion. Our guest today is Greg Mitchell, co-chair of the IRF Roundtable. The Roundtable is a group of NGO representatives from across the political and religious spectrum who meet regularly to discuss IRF issues in a safe space and to coordinate advocacy actions that participants can choose or decline to join in on. Greg, welcome to USERF Spotlight. Thanks, Elizabeth. It's great to be here. It's great to, to be you know, partnered with USERF. And I'm happy to be here. We, we appreciate that. So the Earth Roundtable has existed now for more than 10 years, initially as a relatively small group of advocates who met quarterly on Capitol Hill. Can you tell us a bit about what led to the forming of the roundtable back then and what you were hoping to achieve? Yeah, it was, uh, it was started by Chris Seipel of the Institute for Global Engagement and Sue Vaughn of Freedom House uh, back in 2010. Um, so it's, it's, it's about 12 years now, which is pretty remarkable because back then some people were telling me that it, oh, it, would, it would never work, that it was not possible to get like all the faith communities working together. Uh, but but this started, the roundtable started because if, if you remember, the Pew Center started doing uh, annual reports. They started researching uh, rising restrictions on religion around the world. Uh, and, and the restrictions on religion were rising, you know, so much. That it, it, you know, at a rem it was pretty remarkable. So that's why Pew started to study it. And they've been studying it and publishing reports pretty much on an annual basis ever since then. But back then, I think the first report found that 68% of the world's population was living in countries with high or very high levels of like government restrictions and or social hostilities against religion. So that, that's a high number. Uh, and it was alarming and it was uh, very troubling, obviously, to a lot of people. Uh, and that's why Chris and Sue, and I think even Knox Thames, who used to work for USERF, they, they started discussing uh, the idea and, and then the, the really led to the, the establishment of the International Religious Freedom Roundtable. Uh, and and the, I mean, the reason it formed was to try to reverse that. I mean, and that the first report found that, that number was 68%, but, but since then it, it, it rose to, to 80%. Uh, 
So again, 80% of the world's population living in countries with higher, very high levels of restrictions on religion. Uh, and so it's, you know, restrictions on religion have, have never been worse. And the whole goal and the whole reason, what we're all hoping to achieve at the roundtable is just to reverse that and start, you know, seeing, re reducing restrictions on religion around the world. I do remember some of those early, early meetings since I, I was already at USURF, um, uh, USURF back then. So interesting to hear again about the origins. So since that time, obviously the scope, participation and reach of the Earth Roundtable has expanded significantly. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what the Earth Roundtable is and does today? Uh, like, like you said at, at the beginning, I mean, the Roundtable is simply a space where we bring people together. It's, it's, not, it's not formal. So it's not incorporated, it's not uh, an organization. Uh, it's an informal space where people of all faiths and beliefs come together on a regular basis. Uh, back at the beginning, uh, like you said, uh, it was every two months to four months. So sometimes it was every two months, sometimes it was quarterly. Uh, that, and that was that way for the first few years. But today we meet every week. Uh, and we started meeting weekly um, every Tuesday back in February 2018. And that's when Sam Brownback became the ambassador at large for international religious freedom. And, and he really wanted to a, a weekly touch with the, the IRF roundtable, you know, with the multi-faith community. So, so he asked if we would be able, willing to move from quarterly to weekly. Some people thought it would, uh, it would kill the roundtable. They didn't think people would come together that frequently. They thought it was way too frequent. But a funny thing happened, uh, the, the roundtable more than doubled in size and the, uh, the average attendance at the, the weekly, or back when it was quarterly, the average attendance was about 75 people, again, from all faiths and beliefs and from government. You know, the State Department has always been participating in the meetings, USERF, like you said, uh, some congressional offices are, are also uh, represented. Sometimes you, you have someone from the administration like the, the White House, uh, or other federal agencies. But, but it went from, when we were quarterly, it was about 75. Once we started doing the weekly meetings, it, it went up to 150. You know, and with COVID, we had to, we had to transition to a, a, a Zoom meeting. So we, had, we still do it weekly. Every Tuesday uh, at 11 a.m. Eastern time, we meet by Zoom. And because of Zoom, it's become more of a global meeting as well. Uh, I mean, obviously when we're meeting in person uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, we would meet, you know, we, when we were getting 75 people it was all from Washington for the most part, unless people were in town from overseas and they were invited to come. But, but for the most part, it was a Washington-centered meeting. But now that we've, we're virtual um, and we're online every Tuesday, we have, we have, we've had over 1,100 people from over 60 countries participate in these weekly meetings since we've gone virtual in April 2020. And again, the, 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 the reason we all gather is to share stories, stories of discrimination, persecution, and even genocide, unfortunately. Uh, and the purpose for sharing those stories is to, to catalyze multi-faith actions, uh, to urge governments to take specific policy actions to advance freedom of thought, conscience, and religion for everyone. Uh, so what, what we do is after we share these stories, uh, usually, somebody will will send start start they will draft a sign-on letter and, and we will send out the sign-on letter to all people on the the irf roundtable mailing list 
uh, and we and we invite everyone to sign on. You know, so it, it, and these letters outline very specific situations in certain countries, usually, uh, and and it's a letter to the leader of of leaders of the government of that country that's restricting religion. Uh, so we write directly. Sometimes we write to the State Department or the President of the United States or the Secretary of State. Uh, urging the U.S. government to take specific actions, but other times we'll write letters directly to leaders of foreign governments that are restricting religion, and we urge them to take specific actions to, to reduce the restrictions and to respect, again, freedom of thought, conscience, and religion for everyone. Uh, so we're, we engage governments uh, together in multi-faith fashion, and we, we call this a, a cooperative engagement model because in pulling people of all faiths and beliefs together, uh, we're actually getting them to engage each other cooperatively and constructively uh, and then engage their governments and to engage other governments, uh, again, together in multi-faith fashion. Uh, and it's an, a cooperative engagement model. So some of the people who, who come to the roundtable, they, you know, 10 years ago, they didn't like each other or they didn't know each other. Uh, they may have had problems with each other. There may have been tensions between different faiths. But what we, what we have seen since, since they've been coming to the round table and working together and standing up for each other through these multi-faith actions, uh, we've seen that, that this model has proven to build mutual respect, trust, and reliance across these deep religious differences and belief differences. Uh, so it really makes for strange bedfellows. You know, we, we, I've seen relationships between uh, representatives of faith communities that never would have been in the same room 10 years ago uh, now they're, that they've gone from working relationships to, to friendships, uh, and we've even, you know, seen love across these deep differences. So it's a model that increases social cohesion and reduces tensions between faith. So that's why we, we've actually, you know, thought it would be a good idea to replicate this model and start, you know, helping people uh, establish these multi-faith roundtables all around the world. So in addition to our, our very global weekly meeting on Zoom every Tuesday, uh, we, we've since January 2019, I've been traveling around the world. And now we have a team of us traveling around the world. Uh, multiple people from the roundtables have partners or communities or colleagues around the world. And we're setting up these religious freedom roundtables all around the world. And we have over 20 of them now in, in what we're calling a global network of religious freedom roundtables and partners. Uh, and we're, we're building, and we probably have another 30 or 35 uh, that, that are planned over the next three years. So we'll probably build from 20 roundtables to about 50 plus by mid-2025. Uh, and again, these, all, all, these roundtables start up around the world because there are representatives of faith and belief communities on the ground in these countries that learn about the International Religious Freedom Roundtable in Washington, and they basically invite us to come to their country uh, and help them set up a roundtable in their country. So I'll just name a few examples. Nigeria was the first one uh, I, I went to and the first one we set up overseas in January, 2019. Uh, I'm, I mean, I've pretty much been all around the world since then. We've gotten nice, so Nigeria, I was in uh, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, been in Romania, been in uh, Hungary, uh, let's see, you know, United Kingdom, Brussels, uh, have been down to Guatemala, Costa Rica. Uh, those are just the, the ones I can remember off the top of my head, but we've got, again, 20 of these. And we're really, 
The idea is that this shouldn't just be an activity that we're doing from Washington or from the West, you know, Washington and the United Kingdom, but uh, it would really be great in advocating for freedom of thought, conscience, and religion for everyone. It would be great if governments that are restricting religion would start hearing from the multi-faith community all around the world, from you know, religious freedom advocates on every continent, in every country, eventually. So they're not just hearing from Washington and London, but they're hearing from people all over the world. And they're hearing from real people you know, who are representatives of these different faith and belief communities. And so, you know, just to finish the, my answer on this one. Uh, so in order to build this global roundtable, we're, we're now organizing a series, like a global series of summits around the world. Our first one will probably be in Guatemala in March of next year. Uh, that'll be a Latin American regional summit. But the idea with that is to then catalyze the establishment of new roundtables throughout Latin America. Uh, and Brazil will host the next ministerial to advance religious freedom later in the year. So we'll, we'll probably do an event in Brazil. Uh, we have a roundtable that's building in Brazil already. Uh, and we'll use these, these summits to set up regional secretariats that can help bring new roundtables online and into the global network, and then coordinate multi-faith actions, you know, through, through these different roundtables. So you, you see it, it's building into a big, not only a, a global network, but eventually a global movement, you know, to advance religious free, uh, freedom and freedom of thought and conscience as well for everyone everywhere. Uh, and, and we think that this is, this is the way forward, that this is like the next step, or the next evolution in, in the, the efforts to secure and advance religious freedom for everyone. Thanks for that. Really, it has been a great, um, a great trajectory, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, pivoting to this, some of this, the situations you, you mentioned that you and the other um, NGOs are working on. So now, based on your long experience in this space, what do you see as the most pressing earth issues in the world currently? And have those key issues changed during the time you've been involved with the Earth Roundtable? Yeah, thank you for that question. Yeah, I mean, it's still... There's still uh, a lot of, you know, what, what we see is that people of these different faith communities are having trouble, you know, living together peacefully across, you know, their deep religious and, and belief differences. Um, and, and there's, there's some of this, I, I think a lot of this, the problems are the same. I think they've been, uh, there's a lot of uh, um, minor, like majority versus minority religion issues and us versus them, uh, and, and people of uh, like majority faith not respecting the rights of minority faith. There's a lot of, of those issues around the world. I, I think, uh, so, and I think what, what's causing that or what continues to, to perpetuate that situation is that there's not enough interactions across, you know, these different religious and belief communities. There's, they're not interacting enough, uh, so they don't know each other enough. And so, you know, when you don't know somebody and you don't understand who they are or where they come from, it's, it's easy and you're susceptible to listening to propaganda or false reports, you know, about, you know, that community, you know, and you, and you can come to then uh, fear and dislike, you know, like the other, you know, because you don't know them and you don't work with them and you don't, you know, understand them. So, the us versus them and kind of like the segregation where, where the different faith and belief communities are separate and, and separate, kept separate from each other and not 
communicating with each other and developing relationships with each other. That that's one big problem, you know, that that continues to, to this day and gets worse with social media. Unfortunately, I think social media has something that that's really the use of social media has increased in the last 12 years since the roundtable has been around. And it's only made things worse, you know, as far as making it much easier for people to spread false stories about, uh, you know, religious communities or belief communities that they don't know and they don't understand. You know, so a lot of fault, again, propaganda and false reports spread around uh, uh, social media. You have people who, you know, have access to grind, you know, maybe, people who leave a faith community and then start attacking a faith community and others who don't know or understand that faith community start, start joining the, the mob, you know, and attacking that faith community. Uh, anyway, that, that's one big issue. So, and then when, when it comes to governments, governments still have a lot of registration laws where they require religious communities to register and only if they're registered and recognized by the government can they actively and legally uh, practice their faith. So those registration laws are still a problem. Uh, blasphemy and apostasy laws are still a big problem. It's still a huge problem uh, and a lot of ne you know, negative influence. Uh, there's, there's death penalties you know, for blasphemy and apostasy laws. So a lot of people in the community are working to, we'd, we'd love to eliminate blasphemy and apostasy laws worldwide, but as a starting point where I think we're focusing on trying to eliminate the death penalty for such laws. Um, but that's another one. And then obviously with geopolitics, there's, there's a lot of negative influence from China and Russia. Uh, and then in the Middle East, you have Iran and Turkey. So there, there's just different, different negative uh, influences in, in the region that, that make certain people in these different regions uh, afraid to uh, really embrace reforms that would improve on religious freedom and really would advance religious freedom for everyone uh, because they're afraid that, that, that there would be some you know, price to pay you know, from a China or a Russia or a, an Iran, let's say. So there's negative influences in the region that, that some people are afraid to, to, to work with us to improve on religious freedom because of these big powerful uh, countries that, that, don't, that are really bad on religious freedom. Uh, and I think then the, the last thing I would just want to say is I, I'm starting to view this more and more as a like a citizenship and governance issue. That uh, and these religious freedom roundtables I think are uh, you know they can be I, I view them as a model of good citizenship and governance because that you know in a nutshell the the bottom line is that any faith community that's being discriminated against or persecuted. Uh, because of their faith or belief, they're being marginalized and they're being alienated and they're basically being pushed out of the public square and not allowed to really be citizens of their own country. You know, so, and that's a, a, a citizenship problem. You know, if they're pushed out of the public square or not allowed to be citizens, which in effect, that's what's happening when they're discriminated against and persecuted, then, then you're, they're, they're being treated as second-class citizens or even worse. So the, these roundtables that, that we're developing around the world, you know, our hope is that they're going to become a good, uh, a good citizenship model, which will lead to good, good governance. Because I, I know from working with a lot of these governments, they actually want good citizens. They, they, they want their people to be good citizens, uh, you know, and they, they, they actually want to solve social problems in their country. 
Uh, and, and we're through these roundtables, we're setting up these roundtables in public squares and we're bringing some of these people who have been pushed out of the public square, bringing them back into the public square through these roundtables where they're able to sit with the majority community and they're able to sit with their governments uh, and they're able to speak into policy discussions. And eventually, you know, we, we hope that they'll be able to work together on social issues as well, like humanitarian projects uh, and other projects to solve social issues. But, you know, it, I think it all comes down to that. It's just, you know, religious freedom violations are uh, like a bad citizenship problem. And the roundtables can, can help to solve that by, you know, bringing them back into uh, the public square, you know, and they want to be good citizens. They want to be good citizens. They want to be recognized and treated as citizens, equal citizens. So this is a, you know, a whole, you know, it's an inclusive equal citizenship solution, you know, to religious freedom violations, which are citizenship violations, you know, which, which create bad governance. Uh, I, I hope that that makes sense, but, you know, and the, the, I guess the, I'll add one, one more thing, Elizabeth. Uh, you know, one of the things we've seen is that, you know, traditional advocacy by itself ha hasn't been, has proven to be insufficient to solve these global challenges. Uh, and these, you know, the continuing, you know, social hostilities against religion, which gives a green light to governments to restrict religion. You know, traditional advocacy has been each community advocating for itself uh, and a lot of name blame and shame their oppressors. Uh, that has not, you know, been enough to stop this problem or reverse the, the trends. Uh, the, so the roundtable has come in with a multi-faith advocacy model that's, that's based on cooperative engagement and bringing everyone together. Uh, but, e but even that, you know, it, it's hard to say if that's gonna be enough, multi-faith advocacy. So I think in the future, you know, where we're headed now is to try to build religious freedom from the ground up in these countries, because you know, in the end, religious freedom is only going to in, uh, improve on the ground in each of these countries. And, and these governments that are restricting religion, they're only going to agree to improve when, the, when they see that it's in their self-interest and, you know, when they're hearing enough from their own faith communities. You know, and again, it's a bottom-up, I think, enough bottom-up pressure and multi-faith type of pressure inside their, their countries that I think they'll have to respond to at some point. And, it, and it's not gonna just come from multi-faith advocacy efforts in Washington uh, and London and Brussels and other places in the West. And I hope all that made sense. Yes, definitely made, made a lot of sense and, and very important points, thank you. So this year, International Religious Freedom Day is IRFA's 24th anniversary. With the vantage point you've had through the Earth Roundtable, how would you assess the U.S. government's efforts to promote freedom of religion or belief abroad over the past 24 years? Where do you think U.S. policy in this area has had successes, and where is there room for improvement? Good question. And I, I'm going to build on the, you know, what I was saying at the end of that last, uh, in my last answer. Uh, I mean, if, for overall, for the most part, you know, the U.S. government efforts to promote freedom of religion and belief since IRFA, I mean, they, they've, been, they've been great, they've been tremendous, uh, you know, and they've, the US government has led the world really, you know, since the passage of IRFA. And we've, we've set an example that others have been following. For instance, you know, we have an international religious freedom office with an international religious freedom ambassador. 
other countries have since uh, established uh, either ambassador positions or special envoys for freedom of religion or belief. Uh, so, so we, so that's been good. You know, the U.S. has been the leader in in the freedom of religion or belief movement, uh, and again, other governments have, have been following their lead. Um, and and to so there's there's really two. I kind of started to talk about this in my last answer, but there's two approaches to improving religious freedom around the world. One is the advocacy approach, uh, and that's one's more focused on reporting on violations. So the U.S. government's really good at at uh, connecting with, with faith communities all over the world, you know, through our through the through the embassies uh, and through the you know advocacy organizations and spaces like the International Religious Freedom Roundtable. So the U.S. government is great at being open, you know, to in being in communication with faith and belief communities around the world and in Washington. Uh, they're great at, at soliciting information about the challenges each faith and belief community are facing. Then they're great. They're great about putting out their their annual reports. You know, basically detailing all the violations and the limitations on freedom of religion that they've learned about each year. Uh, and all that's very important and it's vital and, and it's necessary. You know, because where these violations are occurring, you know, somebody needs to be letting the world know about you know, discrimination and persecution, again, even genocide, unfortunately. So the U.S. government has been the leader in, in, in that respect. And USERF is part of that, too. USERF does a great job of reporting on violations, doing their own research and, and connecting with faith communities and working with faith and belief communities and doing its own reports. Uh, it's, now, as far as actions, you know, so the reporting is one thing. And like I said, it's vital and it's necessary. Now, the, where, where could the U.S. government improve? I mean, well, before I get to that, I'll, I'll, I'll say one other thing about where they've been good. Uh, because of our International Religious Freedom Ambassador, you know, we, we've been doing very well. The U.S. government does very well at, at uh, um, diplomacy and, and connecting with the leaders of foreign governments and urging those leaders of foreign governments who need to improve on religious freedom. The, the ambassador has been really good uh, on both sides, you know, we've had ambassadors who are Democrats and Republicans alike, uh, and they've all been great to work with. They've all worked well with civil society, and they've all been done really well at advocating for religious freedom or belief for everyone. And same thing with the IRF office. They, they're a tremendous team. They're very dedicated. They're, they're as dedicated as, as all of us advocates out in the faith communities and civil society, uh, as are the USERF staff, you know, so everybody that, that's, that's, in these positions that were created by IRFA, you know, doing a tremendous job, you know, and, and they're great partners with civil society. So now to get to the point where where could the U.S. improve, uh, like I said, uh, report just traditional advocacy isn't enough and just reporting on religious freedom violations isn't enough. Uh, and I don't think even with an ambassador at large for international religious freedom and having that ambassador engaging foreign governments and urging those foreign governments to improve that's all they're all very needed very vital very needed but it's it's not quite enough you know to reverse the the tide that pew has been reporting on this this rising this tide of rising restrictions on on religion around the world and it's still at the highest levels ever even 24 years after urfa so something's missing uh, and and one thing is i'm so the irf roundtable we, Originally, we only engaged the U.S. government, 
And we were only asking the US government in multi-faith fashion to do more to engage other governments. Now, certain governments, we know it's almost impossible like China and Russia, but other governments, you know, where we, you know, we have allies, the US has allies uh, who, are, who need to improve on religious freedom. You know, allies, you know, such as Kazakhstan, you know, Uzbekistan, those just, just to name a couple. And we were asking the US government to reach out and do more to engage those governments who are US allies and, and urge them to improve on religious freedom. And, and this is back, I'm talking years ago now, this is back in 2013, 2012, 2013, there was a wave of new religion laws that were passed in that, like in Central Asia, for example, I'm just giving one example, these new religion laws uh, increased restrictions on religion. And we were asking the US government to, hey, can you go out and do more to engage those governments? And we were hearing at the time, oh, there's nothing more we can do. You know, they're, they're, they're allies in the war on terror and there's nothing more we can do to put any more pressure on them to improve on religious freedom. So, and that's always gonna happen. Geopolitical considerations come into play uh, and the, the US government doesn't always do what the multi-faith community asks it to do to advance religious freedom for everyone. Uh, and that's usually at the higher levels though, above the, the ambassador at large, above the IRF office. You know, at the higher levels, like the White House, the Secretary of State and the national security level, that's usually where, you know, that they don't always agree to, to do, you know, what, what we want them to do to ask our allies to improve. So that's one, one area they can improve, where they can see that, that religious freedom is actually more vital to national security than they currently think it is. You know, and, and they would actually agree to, to engage more with our allies. Uh, the, the other point I'll make is room for improvement. Uh, again, I, after doing all this work through these round table and now you know, traveling around the world and helping, helping local faith leaders start these roundtables in their own countries. Again, I, I think the real work at building religious freedom is done on the ground in these countries. Uh, it's, it's not done through diplomacy or foreign policy, you know, it's in, or advocacy, it's done on the ground inside the countries. So I think uh, more coordination, you know, with multi-faith communities in each country, you know, I think will, will, will be very helpful. Uh, and, and just more empowerment of local faith communities inside these countries uh, and more engagement with foreign governments, not through just the, the like name, blame and shaming of the annual reports, but more engagement um, on, the, on the grounds of helping these countries see why it's in their self-interest to improve on religious freedom for their own citizens. Uh, and again, kind of partnering with and urging those governments, whether they're friend or foe to work with their multi-faith community through roundtables like ours in Washington, uh, and really urging the government to work with its, its faith communities through these roundtables to work together, you know, where the government listens to, you know, its multi-faith community uh, and responds by working with the multi-faith community to really advance religious freedom, freedom of thought, conscience, and religion for everyone. Thank you. Uh, for one, one last question to draw you out a little bit further on some things you've touched on in your earlier answers. Um, so as you've pointed out, in addition to working with governments that promote Earth abroad, um, the Earth Roundtable NGOs engage directly with foreign governments that themselves restrict religious freedom. What lessons and best practices have you learned for successful civil society advocacy to press governments that are violating religious freedom to improve their conduct? Great question. 
Um, I'm going to make one final point. I forgot as you were asking this question on that last question. USURF makes great policy recommendations. Uh, and uh, one of the re ways the US government could improve is to actually implement more of the policy rec recommendations that USURF makes. Probably the best thing about USURF is it makes good policy recommendations, you know, separate from geopolitical considerations and they're, they're pure, they're good, and the US government should do, would do well to listen to and follow the lead of, of the USURF team. So that's one thing I wanted to say on where they could improve also. And then to answer your final question, yeah, I mean, really it's all about cooperative engagement. Um, you know, when, whenever we go into a, a country and help people on the ground in each country to set up their own round table, we ask them to customize it for their own local context. Uh, but it's all about bringing all the faith and belief communities together in that country and getting them to engage each other cooperatively and constructively. Uh, and then once they're really working well together to start engaging their government uh, in multi-faith fashion, so it becomes cooperative and, and constructive engagement by the multi-faith community with their own government and working together uh, and sitting at the same table and listening to each other and finding ways to work together. Again, not just to advocate for religious freedom, which is again, vital and needed, but to build religious freedom through cross-cultural multi-faith actions, like in partnership with their government. I, I believe that's the only way that, that we're gonna solve the problem. I think if the more we're doing that and the more that the faith and belief communities are doing that inside their own countries, all around the world, I think that's the way that you're gonna see uh, those pew numbers start to reverse and become reducing, you know, decreasing restrictions on religion and decreasing social hostilities around the world. You know, so again, so you need both approaches though. You still need the advocacy and the reporting to drive governments to the table. You know, the, let's call it the engagement table, you know, which is a round table in the public square. But you need the reporting, you know, so that, so that because most of these governments don't want to stay on the reports. They don't want to still be on the report and be seen as a bad guy on religious freedom. So, but you need the reports to get them to the table where they can engage again with their multi-faith community and work with the multi-faith community. And, and, you know, in partnership, they can build religious freedom for everyone in their country. And if you're doing that all around the world, that's how we solve the global challenge in my mind. So you know, thank you for that question. Thank you for, for that answer. Um, that unfortunately is all we have time for today. I want to thank Greg Mitchell for his years of work related to international religious freedom and for sharing his insights with us today. You can learn more about USERF's work and our recommendations for U.S. international religious freedom policy on our website at www.uscirf.gov. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight.